Our scripture reading this morning is Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as uh, as at Meribah, as on the day at Messiah, at Massah, in the wilderness." When your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Thanks, Kara. Um, well, hey, good to be with you this New Year's Eve day. I hope you got some great plans for the day. Um, thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, so in 1914, which was around the same time as the sinking of the Titanic, there was a, um, another hearing at Congress, and it was because there was another nautical tragedy that, that had taken place in that year. It happened off the coast of Virginia, And what happened was the steamship Monroe was rammed by this merchant vessel, the Nantucket. And eventually that ship sank. And there were 41 sailors that lost their lives. And what happened is that they're trying to sort out what had taken place that day. And the the captain of the Nantucket was arraigned on charges. But during the trial, the captain of the other ship, Captain Johnson, was grilled for over five hours. And during cross-examination, it was discovered that his compass was off by two degrees. And although he had claimed that that was sufficient for running the ship, his compass had never once been calibrated that year. It had never been marked to be due north, and it wasn't adequate therefore, for navigation. And so after the trial was all done, one of the scenes was of these two burly captains holding one another and just sobbing. Uh, James K. Smith, writing about this, marks how this is a moving reminder of the tragic consequences of misorientation. In Psalm 95, uh, you've just heard it, it it ends with a warning. Uh, It's a warning about hearts and lives that are misoriented, uh, whose hearts, like a compass, are not calibrated to the due north. And Psalm 95 is is this collective call towards genuine worship. Uh, a life that is calibrated, a life of trust and love and obedience 
to this great God. And therefore, this is what's interesting. Think about this way. One author put it this way. Genuine worship is the most important thing about you. Think about that. It's the most important thing about you. And this passage shows us three things about genuine worship. It gives us a summons to it. It shows us the difficulty of it. And then thirdly, it shows us the way towards it. So let me pray and we'll get in. Father, we pray this morning that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing to you. You are our Lord, our rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, firstly, the summons. Um, Look with me for a moment at verse 1 and verse 6, and notice how it begins. It says this, O come, let us sing to the Lord. Uh, Verse 6 says, O come, let us worship and bow down. And and therefore, the psalm begins with this summons. Have you ever been summoned before? Uh, Most of the time we think about being summoned, we think of it where you get a court order. You need to show up. It's a direct order. It's a command. And actually, that's what Psalm 95 is doing here. It's a command. It's a command to worship. Does that sound a little bit dogmatic? Does that sound a little bit narrow? Well, let me put it this way. It's not. And let me give you two reasons why from this passage. First, look, at, look for a moment in Psalm 95 who this God is that you're summoned to worship. Look with me, verses 3 through 6. It says this, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. Notice it begins with this dynamic that other nations, they have other gods. And yet, what Psalm 95 says, this is the God. This is the great God. This is the great king above all gods. In fact, um, he's so great that he made everything. He made the sea and dry land. In fact, you can go to the heights of this world, Mount Everest, 5.5 miles above sea level. You can go to the depths of the world, the Mariana Trench, where we were last week, 6.8 miles below sea level. And it's all in his hands. In other words, the reason why there is this summons to worship this God is because he is the God. He is worthy of it. In other words, Psalm 95 is saying, for you and for me, this God is worthy of your trust, your love, and your obedience, and your life. But not only that, look at verse 7. Notice what it says. Verse 7 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Verses 3 to 6, we saw that he is the God, but now we see this worshiping community says this, that he is actually our God. Isn't that unique? It's talking about this, this relationship with this God. That is unique. It's a picture of a God who is a shepherd king who leads, 
guides, protects, and provides for his people. And, and friends, this gets in high definition 4K in the New Testament when Jesus shows up and he says, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In other words, it's not because we're lovely, but because he's gracious. Psalm 95, when it summons us to worship, it's saying this, because this God is worthy because he is the God, and by his grace, he is our God. But the second reason, and this passage briefly hints at it, but I think it's absolutely essential, it's something that C.S. Lewis pointed out. Um, Some of you know this, C.S. Lewis was an atheist before he became a Christian. And one of the things is he was working through some of his just issues with the Bible and with this view of God was he knew the doctrine of Scripture that it was inspired, that God had basically through human authors inspired by his spirit these writings. And so he said this, when you read the Psalms like this, oh, come, let us worship, he said, what God's saying is, come and praise me. And he said it felt like God was this kind of old woman seeking a compliment that God was needy. But then it dawned on him, and here's what he wrote. He said this, the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings with praise, lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that is magnificent? The psalmist in telling everyone to praise God are doing what all men do when they speak of what they care about. Now, that's a meaty quote, but do you get a little bit about what Lewis is saying? Let me put it this way. Tonight when the Packers are playing and Jordan Love throws a touchdown, no one is telling you to get off your couch and cheer. You do it because you enjoy it, right? Or the next time you go out for that really good meal, and you're telling your friends about that restaurant, no one's forcing you to do that. Or kids, the next time you see the Mr. Beast video, right? And you go, this was amazing. No one's forcing you to do that. All praise is merely the overflow of enjoyment. So notice this for a moment. On the one hand, Psalm 95 begins with a a summons, a command to worship, but here's what it means. Lewis put it this way, in commanding us to glorify this God, God is inviting us to enjoy him. Isn't that interesting? So this summons, this command to worship, to give all of your life, your trust, your obedience, everything to him, it's because he's worthy, and it's for yours and my joy. But secondly, we see in this passage that this is very difficult to do. You know, we mentioned this earlier, but the the last section of the entire psalm is a warning. And it picks up a story of what happened in Exodus 17. 
the Israelites, God's people, they're wandering the wilderness and they're out of water. And they begin to grumble against Moses, their leader. And this is what they say in Exodus 17. They say this, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? And it gets so bad that they're about ready to stone Moses. He says, God, what am I going to do? And God directs him to a rock. He says, hit it. Water will come out. And he does it, and it happens. But the name of that spot is called Massah and Meribah because they tested the Lord by saying this, is the Lord among us or not? Now, if you get a moment and you read this account in Exodus 17 and you begin to read it in context, one of the things that's most fascinating is if you just go back two chapters earlier, do you know what they're doing? They're singing a powerful song, the song of Moses, after they had been delivered. After they had just seen God split the Red Sea and wipe out the entire army of Pharaoh. And then in two chapters, they're grumbling. Isn't that interesting? So here's the deal. What had happened? In a matter of two chapters, they had forgotten his love and his power in their present circumstances. And see, that's the difficulty of worship. Because honestly, let's be when we think about worship, most of us think, and it's not entirely untrue, but we think about what just happened before I got up here, right? Or what's coming after. And that's not wrong. But what we see is genuine worship is offering all of your life in devotion, trust, and obedience. And check this, in the everyday moments. That's why it's so difficult. I remember um, vividly uh, in 2010, when we were getting ready to move to Madison to be a part of planting a church, um, I was driving... And someone pulled in front of me, and it just is really bad driving. And I'm genuinely a pretty patient person, but I could sense that I was getting very angry. And there was no road rage, no need to call the police, but let's just put it this way. It was abnormal. And I was like, wait, what's going on here? Why am I getting so angry? And I realized this. I really wasn't mad at the person in front of me, they were irritating me. But I was actually, at that moment, I was really angry with God. And here's why. Elise had just been born in March, and her house had not been sold. And so we're sitting there for three months trying to sell our house. And I'm saying to God, God, do you understand? Like, we're moving our family to go start something that we think you're calling us to, And you're not even selling her house. Isn't it interesting? I'm grumbling. It's interesting, it's ironic, right? I was moving here to be a part of telling others about this God's love and his power. And yet in the very midst of the moment of moving, I'm doubting it. 
And that's why worship is so difficult. Because, listen, this is where it comes and it hits the road with each one of us. Worship comes down to the very relational problems you're having. Like that annoying kid in fifth grade. Or that mean girl in eighth grade. It comes down to the difficulty that you're facing at work. Uh, it, It comes down to perhaps the injustices that you faced. It comes down to the disappointment in marriage, to to the problems that you're facing with your health. It comes down to the stress of parenting. It meets us right in the midst of our, when people have expectations of us, how do we handle it? Sometimes it's simply this, it's the temptation of promotion or affluence. Because, listen, it's in the midst of these situations where how we respond reveals what's really in our hearts, what we really love, what we really trust, what we really obey. And oftentimes, right, how do we respond in these moments? Sometimes it's with unrighteous anger, Sometimes it's with sinful anxiety. Sometimes it's with envy. Other times it's with lust. Sometimes it's bitterness. Sometimes we just move away. We avoid the situation. Sometimes it's pride. Sometimes it's harsh words. Sometimes it's greed. Sometimes it's a lack of self-control. So you see, genuine worship, it's in those moments right there where we're called to offer to God our love and our trust and our obedience, all of ourselves. And it's so hard because we forget and we doubt his power and we doubt his love. So what's the way forward? What do we do? If it's what we're called to do, if it's for our joy, if it's what he's worthy of, if it's in fact so difficult, what's the way forward? One of the things that's interesting about Psalm 95 is the last section is actually picked up in the New Testament. And it's picked up in the uh, book of Hebrews. It actually goes through and does a various commentary on this particular psalm and, and this section. But after going through it line by line, here's how it closes out. It's Hebrews 4, 15 through 16 says this, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. The, the author of Hebrews picks up Psalm 95 and directs our eyes to Jesus. It wants us in the wilderness, in the circumstances of our lives, to direct our eyes to him, to see God's love and power fully revealed there. And notice how it describes Jesus. It says that he is our high priest who is able to sympathize with us. That word sympathize, 
One author noted this, it's a depth of felt solidarity like a parent to a child. It's one of the great blessings and hardships of being a parent is your, your highs are as high as your kids and your lows are as low as your kids. You feel it. And it's saying, actually, something like that is true even more of Jesus. That he's sympathetic. That he's not, he's not indifferent. He's not detached. But he's engaged. His heart is engaged. And the reason is, is because the passage says he has walked the same path. He has been tempted like you have been and like I have been. He knows, as one author writes, that he knows what it's like to be rejected and despised and to be filled with shame and to be embarrassed and to be abandoned and to be misunderstood, to be falsely accused, to be alone. He knows this in every respect. So the situations in your life right now where you feel the heat of the wilderness... Hebrews notes is this, Jesus is not detached, his heart is engaged. But here's also the good news about this passage. It says at the end, although he's been tempted, he has been without sin. Now, that's interesting because, let's be honest, sometimes, you know, when you're around people who don't struggle the same way you struggle... It's hard for you to relate to them. Sometimes it's easy for the person who maybe has dealt with the same issues you face to to walk alongside, right? We might say, well, then that makes Jesus kind of up here. But one of the things, again, that Lewis notes is really interesting is the temptation, he said this, is is like a man walking against the wind. And and oftentimes, right, when temptation comes, we walk for a little ways, and then we just sit down, we're done. <laughs> but when it says Jesus has not been tempted, Lewis notes this, it means this, he's walked all the way in the midst of the wind. In fact, so he knows even to a greater degree what it means to be tempted. He's walked even further, more than you or I do. But also, because he hasn't sinned, Dane Orland writes this, he himself is not trapped in the hold of sin with us, but he alone can pull us out. Why? Because he is our high priest. He is the one who has willingly taken those moments where we have sat down, where we haven't offered him our full trust and obedience. And he actually says, come. There is a throne of grace. I remember... um, after getting home from that drive in which my anger had just flared up. And um, it, it wasn't right away, but I just took stock of what was happening inside. And I remember there were two things that, that, that Jesus was at work in my heart. One is um, I really had a sense of entitlement. You know, I was angry because I thought I deserved the sale of my house in a timely fashion, Right? 
But the grace of God in Christ won't allow for entitlement. Everything I had was a gift. Honestly, in the gospel, the only thing you or I are entitled to is judgment. And yet Christ is the one who has willingly taken it. But secondly, I needed Jesus to meet me in my anxiety as well. Because it seemed uncertain, the future. And ultimately, my anger was rooted in this belief that God didn't care, and he wasn't powerful enough to do anything. And therefore, once again, I needed to go back to this good news that God himself had not spared his one and only son. And therefore, will he not also, as Romans would say, give me all things I need? And so there it was. That season for me was learning to worship, was learning to walk in a patient trust day after day while waiting, trusting God to work things out. And can I be honest with you? Right? Wasn't perfect. Didn't bat a thousand that season. There were days in which I was critical or angry or just anxious, right? But God was at work in the midst of that season, working out his love and his power. And he was always there when I came to him, to his throne of grace. That's what he calls us to in the everyday moments. What are you facing? Where's the heat? Where's the wilderness? Psalm 95 is calling you, it's summoning you to offer all of yourself to him. You know, about this time of year, heading into a new year, um, I look at a prayer that was first written by John Wesley. It's actually used quite often in times of commissioning for pastors. But here's, here's what, it, what it says. He writes this. This is the prayer. I'm no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. You know, as I come back to that each year, it's a moment where I'm trying to calibrate my heart And inevitably, there are things I like about that prayer. I like when it says, hey, let me be exalted, right? Uh, Let me be filled. Let me be employed for use to you. But also, inevitably, there there are things in there that I don't like as much, right? Put me to suffering. Let me be laid aside for you. Let me be empty. Let me have nothing. In short, this prayer, it's due north, and it's a prayer of yielding oneself. It's a prayer of offering oneself. And quite oftentimes, 
um, it's not easy to pray, right? But I know, because of who He is and what He's done, that this is what He's worthy of. And it's not because it earns something with Him. It doesn't. But because of, in light of His love and His power displayed in the gospel, in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, that He is worthy of it. And that's my hope, and that's my prayer for 2024. For you, for me, for Redeemer City, that as we enter in, we might grasp His love and His power in the midst of the gospel, and that it might lead us to offer our lives to say, I am no longer my own, but yours. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for his life and his death and his resurrection. Would you, by your spirit, illuminate for us even more clearly today that work? Would you apply it to our lives, even the places where we would rather avoid it? And would you enable us to offer ourselves, all of ourselves, to you? We ask this in your name for our joy and for your glory. Amen.